everyone. My name is Roberta Heal. I'm an associate editor of Evidence-Based Nursing, and welcome to our podcast. We're going to do things a little bit differently this time. You'll notice in the past we have uh, spoken to authors of commentaries and researchers about their research. This time we're going to shift a little bit and speak to a researcher and nursing expert on long COVID. So I'm going to welcome today Elaine Maxwell. She's a registered nurse who has worked as an executive director of nursing and as a non-executive director across three NHS trusts. After completing her PhD, she worked as the lead for patient safety at the Health Foundation and as an associate professor of leadership and service improvement at London South Bank University before moving to be a clinical advisor at the National Institute for Health Research. She is currently a member of the panel of the statutory public inquiry into Muckamore Abbey Hospital in Northern Ireland. And we're very happy to welcome her today because she wrote two NIHR reviews of evidence on long COVID, which were published in October 2020 and March 2021. So welcome, Elaine. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that discussion, perhaps a little bit more about your interest in long COVID? Uh, Well, thank you very much for having me. Yes, I think the thing to add is that I've recently become a trustee and co-chair of a patient group on long COVID, long COVID support. And we have a website, longcovid.org, and we're working to ensure that the evidence that is out there on long COVID is collated and there's a sort of sense-making because at the moment, lots of people are researching different aspects and it's not coming together in a whole. So it's not actually producing any benefit for people living with long COVID. Well, it's great to have that work being done. And so let's dive into some of the questions, some of the things that you've learned in this process. So if anyone is following the news, we'll often hear different reports about the numbers of long COVID. Why do the estimates of the prevalence of long COVID vary so much? One of the things we said in our first review back in October 2020 is that long COVID is most likely an umbrella term for a number of different things that are happening. So how you ask your question and how you collect your data will influence the prevalence numbers. Initially, people were very focused on people who'd been in hospital. There was an assumption that long COVID is a tale of recovery after an acute infection that required you to go to hospital. So a lot of the studies that were published early on were looking at people who'd been admitted to hospital with their initial infection. And they were picking up a lot of things that you might expect to see from anybody who'd been quite ill, who'd been in intensive care, Uh, We know about post-intensive care syndrome, and these reports weren't distinguishing that from something that might be unique to a COVID-19 infection. What we are lucky to have in the UK is our Office of National Statistics does a monthly survey of 340 households asking them about long COVID symptoms. And they are consistently showing that 90% of people who report long COVID were never admitted to hospital at all. And about half of them didn't access any healthcare with their initial infection. So we've got this disconnect between the people who are in hospital and the people who weren't. And in fact, some of the long COVID clinics in the UK are saying there is a different phenotype in people who were not admitted to hospital from those who were. So that's the first complication, generalising from hospitalised patients to others. The second thing is that there isn't an agreed list of symptoms, both 
the UK definition from the National Institute for Clinical Excellence and the World Health Organization definition are both definitions by exclusion. They're basically somebody who's ill and you can't find anything else that's wrong with them and their illness coincides with a COVID infection, which gives you the potential to have a very wide range of symptoms. But most researchers limit the symptoms. So we know, for example, that there are a lot of skin problems. We know that there's menstrual disruption, but those symptoms don't feature in many of the research studies, particularly the big research studies that have a very biomedical focus. So it depends really on what symptoms you're including as to what your prevalence rates will be. And then the third challenge is that for most people, long COVID isn't linear. You don't have a symptom and have it continuously. There are lots of people who thought they were getting better after their COVID infection and had a period of wellness. And about three months later, they crashed. So they're not being picked up in follow-ups because they got excluded early on. And also we know it's a fluctuating condition that symptoms uh, remit and relapse. And so the ZOE app in the UK that estimates quite a lot of uh, long COVID always has consistently lower numbers than ONS because they take the first point at which somebody says they're symptom-free as resolution. Whereas the Office of the National Statistics that does most of the work in, in the UK requires people to report two consecutive monthly periods of not having symptoms. So some real methodological problems in there. Wow, there certainly are. And given all of this, what is the general consensus of the prevalence of long COVID? So there is a growing consensus, um, both in English-speaking countries and others. So, for example, the Belgian government did a big review of long COVID and published their findings recently. And it seems to be something between 10 and 30%. So 10% of everybody, if you include people in hospital and people who weren't, and probably about 30% of people who were in hospital. But that has got very wide confidence intervals. But for, for planning assumptions, somewhere between 10 and 30% is probably the median, but there's a very wide range. That still seems like quite a large percentage given the number of people who've actually experienced having um, an infection with COVID. Um, so I'm sure that there's a lot of interest in trying to prevent it. And then the next question, of course, is do vaccines prevent long COVID? The short answer is yes, but not as much as you might think. There have been studies in the UK. Again, the Office of National Statistics has found that there is about a 40% reduction in the reporting of long COVID in people who've been double vaccinated. There was a big study in the US, um, the US Department of Veterans Affairs, and they uh, looked at people who've been double vaccinated and found that there was a, an illness burden of 99 per 1,000 breakthrough infections, which is lower than people who are not vaccinated, but it's still higher than people having continuing problems after flu. So yes, it does reduce it. But as you say, given the high numbers of people who've been infected, there's a huge illness burden in society. It's certainly something that's looming, isn't it? You talked about the differences in uh, perspectives about which symptoms would comprise long COVID. What are the most common ones? Well, again, it's complex because what we see is symptoms change over time. 
Most studies take a very short period of time for assessing symptoms and we need to actually see how their symptoms change over time. People who've been ill for over a year are reporting different things from people who have been ill for eight weeks to 12 weeks. But overall, um, the two most common symptoms are pain and people don't talk so much about pain, but it's really significant pain and it comes up repeatedly as the number one um, symptom and fatigue and this isn't tiredness this is really crushing fatigue that stops people doing other things now those two symptoms occur across a large number of people's long covid but we're starting to see that there are different clusters of symptoms in different people and that's problematic because most studies just measure have you got one of this list not what does it coexist with. But there have been a number of studies that show that there is a cluster around neurological symptoms. So it starts off with the loss of smell that is frequently reported as a symptom of a COVID infection, but people get headaches, they get dysautonomia, lots of people with postural uh, or static tachycardia, lots of people with tachycardia without postural problems. So there seems to be a whole load of things around neurology And there is some evidence that neurological symptoms intensify as the duration of long COVID goes on. And some people who didn't have them at the beginning are starting to have neurological problems by the time they get to six, nine months in. There's a group of symptoms around cardiorespiratory problems. So people will often tell you that breathlessness is a symptom of long COVID. That tends to improve over time. And we've seen that in the USA We've seen it in France, we've seen it in the UK. Unless, of course, you've got clear organ damage. But if if there isn't evidence of clear organ damage, that does seem to improve. There's a whole load of symptoms around um, muscular skeletal problems. So that goes back into the pain. Lots of people have uh, muscle and joint ache and pain. But a lot of people have post-exertional malaise. And so for them, being told to take exercise is really unhelpful because it just makes them worse. And that seems to link in to something that athletes have called overtrain syndrome. So it's really important that health professionals understand the difference between fatigue that is due to deconditioning because you've been ill and post-exertional malaise, which is not deconditioning at all. It's a biochemical changes, including quite a lot of evidence that the mitochondria can't Uh, produce energy there's some dysfunction in the mitochondria and actually exercising makes it worse there's a group of symptoms around the gut a lot of people have gastric reflux um, diarrhea constipation and that's particularly common in children it's one of the most common symptoms in children there are a whole range of symptoms around skin disease skin rashes and um, some people have said that long covid is very similar to mast cell activation And people can often be treated quite successfully with antihistamines, H1 and H2 antihistamines. And then, of course, there is a whole tranche of new diagnoses that have happened within six months of um, having a COVID infection. So some really big data studies, both in the US and the UK, looking at medical records that show that the hazard ratio for developing for new diagnosis of diabetes is 25 Lots of new diagnosis of hypertension, which is leading into cardiovascular events, um, stroke, MIs. So 
It is very wide ranging. And my personal view is at this moment, we need to subdivide it in order to understand it better. My goodness, it certainly seems um, daunting to uh, not only go through the research related to it and sort out these symptoms, uh, but certainly from a management perspective. But um, understanding more about the mechanisms for long COVID may be helpful. And is there any understanding now about the pathophysiology of long COVID? Yeah, so there are a number of theories And I think they could all be true and might explain different presentations. Firstly, there could be viral persistence. So there have been studies, particularly in Asia, that have shown the presence of the virus in the gut, even though it's not detectable in the nasopharynx, which is the only area that certainly in the UK we have a test. Some suggestion that there may be still viral activity uh, in the nerves. We've seen that in other viruses. So, you know, we know that shingles is, you know, a dormant virus that pops up every now and again. So it's likely to be that. There's been some evidence of demyelination of nerves, similar to that that's seen in multiple sclerosis, which, again, there's a theory that that might be related to a viral infection. There's a theory around autoimmune responses, Uh, And certainly there's a lot of evidence of inflammation. And, you know, there's some debate about whether people who've been in hospital and had steroids may not be getting this sort of symptom because they've had steroids early on, whereas people who stayed at home haven't. There's a lot of interest around endothelial inflammation, clots from various um, mechanisms, and the inability that creates in oxygen exchange in the tissues. So there's been a study out showing that some people who've had long COVID who don't have any apparent heart-lung problem have reduced VO2, peak VO2. And when they look at um, peripheral bloods, they see very little difference in the um, arterial and venous blood. So it's getting oxygenated in the heart, but it's not being diffused into the tissues and now there are various theories about why that is is it because the endothelium in the blood vessels is inflamed reducing you know the area is it because there are clots there or is it as i said earlier because of the mitochondria and then of course there is organ damage and there was a study that came out quite recently in the uk where they're using xenon gas to scan people in hospital. And they're finding that people who have no damage apparent on a CT have damage that is apparent on this um, xenon gas scanning. As I say, these might all be involved. So maybe that some people only have one of those mechanisms. It may be that some people have all of those mechanisms. And that, of course, makes it really difficult to research, let alone treat. It certainly gives one... uh something to think about. I've been quite diligent in my family in um, trying not to contract COVID. We've done our best. And so far, we've been okay. And this is really supporting that those efforts because it doesn't sound like long COVID is something that anybody would want to um, to contract in the long run. But when we think about management, because that will be the next big 
thing in our healthcare system is managing the care of of people with long COVID. Um, what do we know that might already? What do we already know that might be transferable to the care of uh, people with long COVID? So I think there's a difference between people who have symptoms that resolve by 12 weeks. Lots of people have symptoms that resolve by 12 weeks without any intervention from any healthcare practitioner. And then there's an increasing number of people who've been ill for over a year. So in the UK, it's over half a million. And I think certainly in that group, we need to think about what we know about managing long-term conditions, which of course nurses are past masters at. And so there's a lot of generalised learning. I think on top of the fact they've got a long-term condition, there are two particular features. One is the uncertainty You know, if you are diagnosed with, let's say, um, chronic lung disease, it's devastating, but there is a clear understanding of the pathways and the treatments available. If you have long COVID, you don't know what the future is and you are still getting told by people it's all in your mind. The other thing is that long COVID is unusual in that it is more common in working aged people than it is in older people. So it's more common in people aged 35 to 69 than any other age group. And it's more common in women. So this is a group who are still trying to go out to work. They've usually got family commitments. We did a survey at the NIHR and found that about 40% of people were unable to continue caring for their dependents, which was either their children and significantly health services for their older relatives. So a huge burden for social services if the women, the unseen carers, aren't able to do this. So I think there's some general things about long-term symptom or long-term condition management. But we also know that some of the specific problems that people have, we have expertise on. So chronic pain, nurses and indeed other health professionals have long experience in managing chronic pain, particularly neuralgic pain. So I think that expertise is there. I don't think a lot of people with long COVID are getting access to it because certainly in the UK, we haven't set up our services like that. Brain fog or cognitive dysfunction, that is a very commonly reported um, symptom. That's made worse, of course, by not managing the pain properly. But we know from people who work with people with stroke or multiple sclerosis, they have very good strategies for helping people deal with that cognitive dysfunction. We do know that anxiety is very common in long COVID, not because there isn't a physical cause, but because the physical symptoms present uh, or produce the anxiety. And so there is a lot of work about helping people adjust to this change in their health status, particularly as a lot of them have been very fit. You know, they'll say, I was doing a marathon before I got ill. Why can't I do one now? And you're going, well, one step at a time. Don't think about a marathon this year. But we're also seeing quite a lot of people who, for various reasons, have got disordered breathing patterns. So they were fearful when they were initially ill. They've got this pain they don't understand. And they have developed these disordered breathing patterns. And a lot of nurses who work with people with respiratory disease are used to that. They have very good training programs to help people regain an effective breathing pattern. I mean, the list goes on, but it's my belief that within nursing, we have pretty much all the knowledge we need. The question is, how do we get that out to such a large number of people? 
And that will be a question for many years, I think. In the meantime, nurses are also expert researchers. So what does nursing research have to offer? So I think nurses are particularly good at understanding the lived experience. And the point I made earlier about we don't understand different clusters of symptoms. We don't understand how they develop over time. We don't understand how that affects their ability to continue with their day-to-day life. We don't understand what sort of adjustments we should be making at work because it's such a diffuse condition. So I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity for nurse researchers to be looking at how we can individualise our understanding of long COVID and therefore individualise our treatment plans for these patients. In the UK, um, it seems that about 2% of healthcare workers have had long COVID for over a year. So it's a societal requirement, not just an individual. We, and and um, so the teachers, if we've got these occupational groups who've got very high rates, and we already had vacancies, as I'm sure you have, uh, and the world has, how do you actually help these people get back to work? Our current strategy is you can have X amount of sick leave and then you have to come on a staggered return. And if you fail that, we end your employment. But if you've got somebody who's 28, who's potentially got another 40 years contribution to the profession, should you just be ending their employment? So I think there are issues about understanding this from a social policy point of view, as well as understanding it from a patient experience point of view, as well as some of the uh, contribution to understanding the mechanism and the treatments. So there's a whole range of things. So people with postural orthostatic tachycardia, there are POTS nurses who can help people live with that. There's some research to be done about, well, are they having the same experience as other people with POTS? What are the strategies that help them? I think there's a whole world of nursing research that actually I don't see that we've engaged with at the moment. And it might be early days when it comes to nursing research, particularly in the looking at the long range impact of long COVID. But um, either way, it's certainly um, an area that needs to be explored. So I want to wrap things up by thanking you very much for your expertise and to tell you that it's been a fascinating discussion, but a bit terrifying. A little bit hopeful, though, because it seems that there's a great deal of attention being paid to researching long COVID that may help to answer the questions about prevention and diagnosis and management later on. And um, I, I'd like to leave you with a last word if you have uh, anything more to, to um, provide. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there is hope. We're in a period of uncertainty, but there is hope. I think as well, it offers hope for other people with unexplained conditions. I know the MECFS community keeps saying, well, we've had something similar to this for a long time and you weren't listening. I think the sheer scale of the number of people with long COVID means we've had to change our paradigm of how we understand these sort of conditions. And that's going to be good for a whole range of conditions, not just long COVID. Well, thank you very, very much for this discussion, Dr. Elaine Maxwell, and good luck in your future endeavors related to long COVID. I hope to read more about them. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
You can subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and a review on the Evidence-Based Nursing podcast page on iTunes. You can link to it in the description of this podcast on the EBN website, ebn.bmj.com. Thank you very much and see you soon. Thank you.